0: All right, if you would turn in your uh, Bibles to Luke chapter 1, we'll be in verses 26 through 45 this morning. And um, uh, so uh, if you would be turning there, let me catch us up to where we are. For Advent season, we've been, we are moving through uh, Luke chapters 1 and 2, looking at uh, specifically how Luke uh, tells the story of Jesus. And what we have noticed is that Luke uh, tells some completely different details than the other Gospels. He has some particular emphases that are different than the other Gospels that help give us a fuller picture of the story of Jesus. Remember that one of the things he's very concerned about is is indicating the individuals who've been a part of the story, right? It's not just that this is a story of a people, but it's also made up of individuals who have a part to play within redemptive history. Last week, we saw part of the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth announcement of John. And we saw how they're very human, right? I mean, here's Zechariah, who's a priest who knows the Old Testament well, and he serves within the context of the temple, and he even experiences the sovereignty of God in being able to offer the incense, which was a unique privilege for a priest, because oftentimes you could go your whole lifetime serving in the temple, and you never get to go into the Holy of Holies to offer the incense. Not only did he have that happen, but he goes into the Holy of Holies and there's somebody already in there. And he was pretty afraid because of what he saw, and it was Gabriel. You may remember Gabriel from the book of Daniel. And so Gabriel shows up and says, fear not, for the Lord has heard your prayers and Elizabeth is going to conceive a child named John. And John would be the one who would answer the prophecies that occur in Isaiah and other places that the way would be prepared for the coming king. And so, you remember, Zechariah showed his humanity, didn't he? Even though all that he knew, even though he's having this incredible experience, and I think this is telling for us because so often I think we say, you know what, I would believe, I would be more likely to believe if God showed up and did something amazing. Well, no, you wouldn't, actually. Uh, And no, we wouldn't. And no, I wouldn't. We would just want more. All right, that's fine, but can you do this next? Because remember, even the Pharisees, after all they saw Jesus do in terms of healings and miracles, they said, what sign will you show us? Remember Jesus' response. You wicked generation of Jonah, no sign will be given to you. Enough has been shown, you ought to believe by now. And so it's telling to us that Zechariah, who knows, all, knows the Old Testament better than any of us in this room, and experiences the, the presence of Gabriel in the Holy of Holies, doubts. Right? And remember, the antithesis to faith is not doubt, although this will be a little bit costly to Zechariah. For a man of his understanding and magnitude, he should have been able to go along with what Gabriel was saying, but instead he doubted and basically said, how in the world can two old barren people be a part of this incredible story? And Gabriel reminds him, all things are possible with God. In fact, if that's going to be kind of how you look at it, why don't you just remain silent until John shows up? Now the grace in that is that he does get to speak when John shows up and he's going to rejoice and Robbie Baxter will handle that text here in a couple of weeks. And so so we see, even within that story, a lot of our own story. And may we be reminded that all of the miracle whiz-bang stuff cannot move a hardened heart. Only, only the sovereign God breaking that hardened heart and the power of the Holy Spirit can change anything. And that is important for us to remember, especially as we try to... Minister to one another, especially as we try to do what the church's one job is, is to be disciples who make disciples. You cannot argue someone into heaven. Anybody know any hard-headed people in here? You cannot give anyone enough evidence that they're ever going to go, oh, okay, yeah, fine. That sounds great. Submit my entire life. Quit doing all the things I think are fun. uh, and, And go and hang out at the church with all these people I didn't choose. Sounds like a wonderful offer. Thank you. No, you, you, you're not going to do it that way. And even, like I said, even the miraculous. We would explain away. We've been doing it for centuries, by the way. It's called science. We've been trying to find the answer to everything so we can say, oh, yeah, I know how that works. Yeah, I'm, I'm not amazed by that anymore. I know how that works. So this project's been going on for a long time, and it's us too. So do remember that that's one of the reasons that Luke is taking so much time in the power of the Spirit to tell the story of individuals so that we would be reminded of who and whose we are, that we too are part of this story. Now, we're not part of the story in the same way that Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary are, but we do play a part. Remember from last week, the emphasis was to tell the story. This week, the emphasis is that Jesus comes and his kingdom is completely different. It is, in essence, upside down from anything we understand. We do not understand this king. We don't understand how he works. We don't understand his ethics. We don't understand his ethos. We don't understand anything of what he does except what the Holy Spirit gives us understanding for. and That's incredibly important. In fact, one of the things that John emphasizes, in addition to individuals is the role of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, Luke emphasizes, is the role of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that in this text today. So as we approach this text, a question that I have for you, and and don't scoff at it, and don't immediately just kind of push it off, but think about it because either passively or aggressively, you do think there are some things that are impossible for God. So the question I have for you is, what is impossible for God? For some of us, it is the ability for him to bring life forth from us at some point. For some of us, it is a family member being turned by the power of the Holy Spirit and having their heart of stone broken and turned into a heart of flesh. For some of us, it's that he could bring us a spouse. For some of us, that he could change our spouse. For some of us, that he could change us. So there are things that I think, if you thought long and hard about it, which you ought to do, by the way, that we, in essence, declare are impossible for God. Now, for those of you who are wicked like I am, and you're wickedly philosophical, please don't come up afterwards and go, could God make a rock so big he couldn't lift? We've done that, all right? So we're good. That's been dealt with in history. Go do your reading and don't come at me with that stuff. <laughs> uh, and so, so uh, let's, let's leave that one. But this is more about life, isn't it? And oftentimes where we declare the impossibility of God is in the very lives of the people that we ought to love and be praying for and interceding for and loving well. And so nothing, as we will see, we heard it last week, we're going to hear it again this week, nothing truly is impossible for God. So Luke is, in essence, in this story that he's telling, he's beginning to tell Mary's story, and the story of Jesus is a key part of that. It You're going to notice in contrast to the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Mary is very young. In fact, she's uncomfortably young. We'll get to that in just a minute. And the announcement doesn't come in the temple. It doesn't come in the Holy of Holies. It comes in this no-name place. The place you would not expect the announcement of the coming king to come or to the people that you would have expected it to come to. There's only one hint that there's anything in this that is divine and that is the mention of the Davidic or David's covenant from 2 Samuel 7. And So there will be a sharp contrast but there's a link that we don't want to miss and it comes from Psalm 8 verse 2. Let me read that for you. It says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you, God, have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger and point forward to the upside down nature of the kingdom in essence, right? So essentially in Psalm 8, what he's saying is God uses infants and babies to vanquish the foe. And we're seeing that Luke is declaring that. John, who will come, will prepare the way and fulfill the prophecy from Malachi 3 and 4. He will turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers. Again, the whole issue that we have between children and parents is not new in history. We've been doing this for a long, long time. And as you've heard me say before, we've been doing it since the east of Eden. And so the good news is that John is going to participate in preparing the redemptive way for the king. And then we're going to see another baby who will come in miraculous fashion who is going to turn the world completely upside down. Listen to what Arkent Hughes, New Testament scholar and, and pastor, says about, about this announcement. The fancy word that you will sometimes hear is annunciation. Now, that's, Catholics often use that word, but it's not just the Catholics who used it. I think it's a Latin word, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for announcement. Um, but he says, as we study the annunciation or announcement of Christ, we must accept the essential spiritual fact of the incarnation and the gospel. Which is, the Lord comes to needy people. That's really important. What's the antithesis to faith? Pride. Those who think they don't need anything. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I didn't come for the righteous. If you've already got it all together, then you don't really need me now. But, if you in any way, shape, or form are sick, I am the great physician I've come to heal. And so as Arkent Hughes points out, he says he he comes for needy people, those who realize that without him they cannot make it. Those who acknowledge their weakness and spiritual lack, the incarnation, salvation, resurrection, Christmas, are not for the proud and self-sufficient. We could actually stop right there and take a time just to repent if we... Uh, we're willing to do that because a lot of us are self-sufficient and we're proud and we're arrogant and we think we've come this far by our own hand. We think that we can save ourselves. We think that as long as we do a few kind things along the way, that's more than enough to satisfy the God of the universe. That He doesn't require more than that. We'd be wrong, actually. Very wrong. In fact, eternally wrong. So as we step into this story, may we be reminded that God comes to the needy, that the way in which He comes signals the upside-down nature of His kingdom. If you would turn with me to the text, Luke chapter 1, verses 26-33. through 33. We'll look at Gabriel and Mary, part 1. And this is the promised Messiah in the Davidic covenant. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him, give him to, the, to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. All right. So this sixth month is actually during the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And so the miracle that is going on in Elizabeth is now, uh, another miracle has been spawned as far as Mary is concerned. And notice where Gabriel comes to. And it may not mean a whole lot to us, this Nazareth and Galilee, but it meant a whole lot to folks who think, I mean, it would be the equivalent of, uh, I guess, Jesus showing up in Fairburn. uh, Or I went to high school. Uh, Landmark Christian, won a championship, whatever. Okay, Uh, Creekside High School, won a championship, Eric Berry, pro football player. Uh, Jesus would have come before all that though and so, uh, so it would be the equivalent of him coming to some small no name town with a, a very small population in an area that would have been of no account whatsoever in terms of the empire nobody would have heard these names and thought yeah that makes sense that he would come there no in fact if you remember there's a great question that occurs when Jesus shows up and he's choosing the disciples remember what was asked what good can come from Nazareth? Now where do you think that question came from? You think Philip just made it up on the spot, or was there a, a known kind of thing <laughs> like, Nazareth is a, is a rough town. You can probably get your wagon stolen there or your pig stolen. You don't pass through there. And so here, God is showing that he's coming to the far-off place. In fact, we could argue that he's coming to the uttermost. And not only does he come to that place where there's no temple, there's no, no fame, no fortune, none of those things, he comes to a teenager. And this is the part that is slightly uncomfortable for us culturally. Mary was probably somewhere between 12 and 14. Now, in that culture, this would not have been, for, for a 12 to 14-year-old to be betrothed, uh, would not have been anything out of the ordinary. In fact, for most cultures over the whole of, of, of history, this wouldn't have been that big of a deal for us who still call adolescents 30-year-olds, which I think is very odd, uh, and, and, and just we can't imagine a 12-year-old singing what Mary's going to sing, giving the kind of praise that Mary would give, but that's to say we don't understand just how supernatural our God is. So here's Mary. She's poor. She's 12 to 14 years old, and she is betrothed, which is a very strong version of our engagement. Uh, it comes from the book of, book of Deuteronomy, and so... She is betrothed to Joseph, who is of the house of David. That is a signal to us of what's kind of coming. Uh, and, and that's the first sign of any greatness. And so it's an interesting choice, don't you think? Because think about it. Elizabeth is from the lineage of Aaron. Wouldn't she have been a better choice for Jesus than John? Shouldn't it be the other way around? But no. Not at all. In fact, Jesus is coming in such humiliation, is the theological term, such lowness to show us how far He's willing to go so that more and more could be drawn in, more and more could be included. It's essentially uh, setting the stage for no one being able to be left out based on their pedigree or where they were born or who they are. That's a beautiful thing to me that even in how He comes, What is being communicated is the vastness of the Abrahamic covenant, the vastness of the gospel to reach to the uttermost. Don't miss that. And so Gabriel, now think about it. What if when you were 12 to 14, you saw an angel? Now, every other adult who's seen Gabriel has fallen down on their face, scared to death. Right? For a child, she doesn't seem all that frightened of Gabriel himself. She's far more concerned with what he's saying. It's not the appearance that freaks her out. It's what he says. You who are favored. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm like a 12-year-old kid. I don't don't, don't think you got the right person here. Let's not go any further. And she, too, doubts, but doubts differently than the level of doubt that we saw from Zechariah. And so, so Gabriel tells her, don't fear, Mary. Fear not. For from you is going to come Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. Emmanuel will come from you in fulfillment of the prophecies that have all been spoken about him. And not only is he going to come from you, he's going to be called these amazing things. All of these words have freight. He will be called Son of the Most High. He will be called... The Lord, He will be given the throne of David in fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. He will make sure that the kingdom is without end. Where have we heard about this recently? Well, Daniel chapter 7 made it very clear that the last kingdom that will come. Remember, there was all this discussion about all these different kingdoms. And there was one last kingdom. One like the Son of Man would come, the Ancient of Days. And he would set up a kingdom that would be without end. Daniel chapter 7. And what we're seeing here is the fulfillment of that in the the, the announcement of Jesus' coming. He will set up a kingdom that will not end. Now, why does that matter to us? What do we care? Well, how many of you have lived through a tumultuous historical time? We may be living in one. Kingdoms rise and fall. Kings and queens come and go. And yet there is one that will not end. That is a great comfort to us, the people of God, who don't have to be in a specific location for that to be true. We don't have to be under a specific government for that to be true. We don't have to worship in a particular place for that to be true. That is true everywhere. That has permeated all of creation. That is great news to us. So this is the announcement that is coming to Mary of all people. Listen to what Philip Graham Ryken says about that. He says, Mary was chosen to be the mother of Jesus, and her lowly estate was part of God's plan. By choosing Mary, God was beginning to show what humiliation His Son would have to endure for the salvation of sinners. Every ounce of the life of Christ speaks to this. So, If it's true that Jesus is the one who is to come to set up the eternal kingdom and he is the final Davidic king. The question I have for us is what are some ways in which the present reign, you do know he reigns now, right? Like I know that Hebrews, I love the honesty of Hebrews too. It says it doesn't really look like it right now. But you do know he reigns. And how we know he reigns is because he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. What does it mean for Christ to sit down? Means his work essentially is finished. He's accomplished what he came to do. Now, when he returns, he's just going to gather up what is his and judge what is not. But the essential work of salvation has been done. What is left is glorification, to which we would say, Come, Lord Jesus. But he reigns now. He makes intercession now. The other thing that we see that is evidence of His reign is the Spirit at work in this world. So many times we often say, why did this happen when something bad befalls us? But the better question is, in a fallen and broken world, why doesn't more bad things happen? Why were you able to get up this morning, you who did not choose that CO2 exchange? Right? Right? You didn't choose for your lungs to do what they did today. They did that because Christ holds all things together. Would that we would be a people who were less entitled and more thankful, had greater gratitude for this reign of Christ and recognize it. So how how is this reign of Jesus as King evident in your life? Now you may say, now listen, Pastor, don't you go meddling. This is a place usually where you talk about money. And I could. And I probably should. But I'm not going to necessarily. But it is a place that you can see very clearly the evidence of Christ's reign in your life by what you do with your money. And I'm not saying you've got to give it to me. What I am saying is that it ought to be for a kingdom purpose. You ought to be always asking how can we be generous to advance the kingdom Because all that we have been given is not from our hand, it's from the great provider. You can look at it in terms of what you do on worship days. Let me speak to Christmas real quick, because some of you have some concerns. We will start at 1030. We will end sooner than usual. It'll be a shorter service because we won't have childcare at all, period. Not infants and toddlers, there was a small uprising from those who work in that area a little bit, and I do think it is a day in which the volunteers should should get a break, and we will survive. I love the sound of children; it doesn't bother me one iota. I used to preach at the rescue mission where kids scream for an hour and a half. You're not going to beat that, I don't think. Don't try. But we're going to be here and we're going to worship. And let me also say this. If you're not here, it's okay. I'm not going to send you an email. I'm not going to call you out. I understand some of you travel. Some of this is some of the only time of the year you get to see certain members of your family. Go in blessings and in peace and enjoy the day. But do not forget the Lord and what the day stands for. But if you're here, I'm going to be here. And Josh is going to be here. And a few others of us are going to be here. And we're going to celebrate the Lord as it is the Lord's day. Because do remember December 25th was not a biblically mandated holiday. It was created by man. And we have an opportunity on that day to teach our children what is the difference between the traditions of men and the traditions of the Lord our God. And you have an opportunity also, even if you don't come to church, to at least speak to it to your children to help them to recognize there are two kingdoms, one that is forever and one that is passing away. And we, we serve the eternal kingdom. So what you do on Sunday, December 25th, some of you may be far more concerned about New Year's Day. Well, God bless you. Everything's going to be exactly the same. We'll have Alka-Seltzer in the lobby. (laughs) I hope we don't need it. All right, so (laughs) I kind of lost my train of thought. I threw myself (laughs) off there. Let me get back to the scriptures. Let's turn back to the text, Luke 1, 34 through 38. But there, you do think about the ways in which, how is Jesus' reign currently being shown in your life? Some of you, it's parenting. Uh, y- y- as you parent, you, you think you're king, you think you're God, you're not. You think your child is a king or a God, they're not. Uh, and, and you can uh, remember that Jesus reigns and do the things that, that scripture calls for us to do. So that when our children lose their way, and they will all do it at some point, in some fashion, they can find their way home. Turning back to the text, Luke 1, 34 through 38 says this, this is Gabriel and Mary part two. This will be the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. All right. so what we have here is Mary questions and says, how can this be? Much in the same way that Zechariah did. She's saying, I am 12, 13, 14 years old. I have known no man. Though I am betrothed, I have yet to know a man. How can one become pregnant without knowing a man? And Gabriel responds to her, and it's very important that we recognize that he is not in any way, shape, or form being inappropriate or even being sexual in the way that other pagan deities are sexual. What he actually says, the language in the Greek indicates, it's the same thing that happens when the Lord shows up in the Holy of Holies. He overshadows or he fills the place. And just as God filled creation and called forth something out of nothing, he will call forth in the same creative act Jesus from the womb of the Virgin Mary. And it will not in any way be inappropriate. That's why the term overshadowed is used. All the Lord will do is pass over her. And the child will be conceived in the same way, using the fancy term creation ex nihilo, from nothing. And so by virtue of that, by there, there not being this recreative act, but a creative act, Jesus is Holy. He is forged from material given by God alone. To be called holy is something very important. You've got to recognize that. It's especially to be called holy from birth. So Gabriel comforts her. Notice her response as compared to Zechariah's. She listens to this miraculous discussion. Think about what you would have thought at 12 years old. Especially those of you who can get pregnant. Uh, Guys, we, we wouldn't understand. But think about if something, some, this angel had said to you, you will become pregnant. You will be overshadowed. What would you have thought? Notice what Mary says. She says, Behold, I am your servant. Do unto me according to thy word. There's a lot for us to learn from this 12-year-old. Because how many times does God say to us, I am present with you. And every time I am present with you, something happens. And we take it for granted, right? Where is God present with us uniquely in any given week? Got to be at least one seminary grad in here can answer this question. Worship. The Lord's Day Sabbath, the Lord says, when my people gather together and they sing praises and the word is proclaimed, there I am. I am in their midst. And something takes place. Now, you may say, wow, I ain't had no chill bumps in here in like a year. Well, your papillary glands are not what determine the presence of the Lord. Right? They don't. Because if that's the case, then every time Jimi Hendrix plays all on the watchtower, I'm having a religious experience. (laughs) I just don't think that's true. And so it's important that we recognize how faithful God is even when we sense and feel nothing. Now, it's wonderful when he is so gracious as to clue us in and there's a thin place where we can feel the presence of the Lord. I've had some presbycostal moments. I've had the, 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 one of the darkest seasons I have ever been in in my life. And I know you guys are like, how many of these has he had? <laughs> a lot. They're less now. I've gotten older. Uh, And so it was so dark, and and I was driving to work, and I was just so broken, and I was just so ready to be done with all of this kind of stuff. It wasn't driving to the office here. This was some years ago when I was a physical therapist. But I remember I had to pull over because the Lord just felt like the presence of the Lord flooded the car and His closeness and nearness and goodness. Now, you may say, well, that wasn't in the context of worship. And you're right. That's a terrible example for what I said earlier. But my point is, there's times when he's gracious enough to let us feel his nearness. And there are other times where our faith is being sanctified, when he doesn't feel like he's anywhere in the universe at all. And yet, we know all the places where he shows up. So this is one of the reasons that we do emphasize the gathering together in worship of his people. Not just so I'll have something to do on Sunday mornings, because i got nobody else to talk to but so that we as God's people could experience His nearness. We should not take that for granted. That shouldn't be something that we see as kind of like an oil change. I'll I'll grab one every six, eight weeks. No, we need it regular, which is why it says His mercy is new every morning. We need it every day. And He's gracious enough to give us a gathering, a coming together, a miraculous event, by the way, because how do you get... How many of you think you agree with each other on 10% of what you think? And yet you gather together fully, I think, agreed upon this reality. How miraculous is this? How gracious is the Lord to bring us together? It's all because of this initial miraculous event in which he overshadowed Mary and brought forth from her virgin womb the king of all creation let me ask you this, what are some ways in which you have submitted yourself to the Lord as his servant? Maybe a better question is what are some ways you're withholding your servitude to the Lord? Now, let's be careful here because sometimes we can think you've got to go and do something amazing, like you've got to get crazy, like you've got to jump, like you're, right now you're on your phone buying tickets to China. That's awesome, and we want to pray for you if that's what you're doing, but I hope it's God's calling. Uh, but we want to make sure that sometimes it's just the daily loving of our spouse. That is a submission. It's the daily loving of our families, which I know one of the great issues that we all struggle with as parents is there are days when we genuinely don't like our kids. I know that may be shocking to you. Live long enough and you'll figure it out, right? I mean, there's, there's just days that it's just tough. And we don't like ourselves as parents either. And we don't like any of the choices that we've been given. We don't like where we live. We don't like our job. We don't like any of, any of what it seems God has given us as gift. And so we have an opportunity to, every day, to submit ourselves yet again afresh anew as a servant of the Lord, knowing and confessing that he is good and knowing that he provides all that we need in order to be able to do those things, enjoy those things, and experience those things in his love and in his mercy. Amen? So Mary, this 12-year-old, teaches us. When you hear sometimes the hardest thing, the best thing to do is say, Here I am, Lord, your servant, do unto me according to thy word. Turn back to the text, look at verses 39 through 45. This is where Mary meets Elizabeth, and John issues his very first prophecy in utero. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I don't know that there's a passage that makes a greater argument for when life begins. Right? Mary is told, you'll be overshadowed by the Lord, and she immediately goes there, she leaves in haste, travels about three or four days. It would have been 80 to 100 miles for her to get to Elizabeth, which was not easy in those days. So she rushes, and as soon as she walks in, now you've got to understand, she's not been pregnant for long, a few days maybe. And John, who is in utero, prophesies with his leaping, which tells his mother, who has just come in? The Lord is in... Mary. So what does that tell us about when life began? What does that tell us about what we should, when we should begin to value the gift that we've been given in the form of any given life? And so we also see that Elizabeth, who's older, who has, uh, who has been pregnant for six months with John, she shows great humility She's not angry that she wasn't the mother of Jesus, the Lord. Why wasn't she chosen for that? She doesn't get into all that. She is just ecstatic. Mary, this teenage girl who is pregnant with the Davidic king, has chosen to come and to see her. And they are rejoicing at the miraculous work of the Lord together. They are mutually encouraging one another with what God is doing in both of their lives. Elizabeth declares very clearly, Blessed are you, Mary, and blessed is the Lord. So her joy is born of the presence and fulfillment of God's promises and salvation. She is overjoyed at the thing that we have long grown bored with. Not everybody, not all of us, but some of us need to really kind of ask ourselves, why are we not more moved by salvation? Why do we think we've moved on from this? Why do we think there's, all right, yeah, that's great, but I need something a little more exciting than that. No, there's nothing more exciting than the creator of the universe choosing you as his son or daughter. There's no greater gift. Everything pales in comparison after that. To look for something more is to ignore and not know what you were given in the first place. The single greatest gift has been given This is what sets us free to not burden each other to suit our neuroses or our egos. We are free to love one another, be honest with one another, care for one another in such a unique way in union with Christ that it is unbelievable. This is what salvation purchases for us. And yet, how often are our families divided because we struggle so deeply Because we we don't know how to deal with each other. We've got certain ways that we're supposed to talk to one another. If somebody says this at that time, we're losing our minds. As if words and people's opinions were suddenly all that important. You redeemed of Christ. You beloved. You can set all that free. You have the power of the resurrection in you. Use it. You have the Spirit dwelling in you. Call on Him. Call on Him to bring about reconciliation in the places that you thought were long dead with drought. Call on Him to prepare the way for you to step into hard situations and speak honestly and lovingly and patiently because the Lord your God has been patient with you. This same life-giving power that existed in Mary exists in us all. This same Lord dwells in us too. Remember what he's promised. He said, me and God will dwell in you. In fact, you've got a whole trinity of folks hanging out in you if you're redeemed. That's a lot of power. And you may be thinking, did Cameron go? He's talked about the charismatics a lot this morning. I don't know. I'm just speaking Bible, actually. There is power in who we are. We can actually see things change for God's glory. Amen? And if we can't, then no wonder we're bored. No wonder we, we check off. Oh, I sat through another one of Cameron's dissertations on his fears and freaked outness and sin, whatever. I, okay, i, I gotta got some freebie there somewhere. No! No. No, you've been given all of the benefit necessary in Christ. And part of what we get to do between the now and the not yet is to discover that. Would you again be moved to wonder and awe at what is unfolding? What a glorious thing, the minutes and the hours that we are given as gift. Would we, as the psalmist say, teach us to number our days so that we might have a heart of wisdom, In the same psalm, it speaks of life passing quickly. The psalmist is asking, help me to use the gift that you have given me for your glory. Would that we would wake up with those words upon our lips every single day. I know we won't and I won't either. But I would love for that to be true of us. It could be. And if we, like Mary and Elizabeth, could learn to encourage one another. So many of you talk about, how, what a struggle it is to kind of get connected at Christ's community church. What is all this? Yes, we have some small groups attended by about 10% of you. We have a new one coming in January. You can invite anybody you want to lunch. You're free in Christ. You're free in Christ for them to say, no, I don't think so. And live through that. You're free in Christ. It doesn't matter how long somebody else has gone here. You're free in Christ to greet each other. You ought to because by virtue of you coming here, there is a confession you've already uttered. I'm willing at least to suffer for an hour and a half this gospel stuff. Right? Some of you were drug here. I get it. I'll be available to pray for you afterwards. But we have already confessed a, a unity by being here that doesn't need other kind of avenues to make it easier for us. The miracle is unfolding. Share with one another. Take and eat. Take and see that the Lord is good. Tell each other your stories. Let people see what God is doing in you and hear what God is doing in them. Maybe your fear is God ain't doing very much. It's not that God's not doing very much. It's just you, you're not looking. God is always doing something. Again, let me remind you, He woke you up today. So would that we would again, if the, if the heart and the, and, the, and the passion of Christmas is wonder and awe, would we actually have the right wonder and awe at the coming of Christ and all that dwells within us? Would that we would again find great joy in our salvation for the Lord has come to dwell with his people, Emmanuel. So let me ask you this. How has your life been blessed by the faithfulness of others? H- how has your life been changed or affected in any way, shape or form by the faithfulness of others? I was just reading a book this past week by Douglas Kelly, um, Wes Calton and I love Doug Kelly. Wes is not here today, but uh, Wes and I actually saw what we, we termed the Trinitarian mic drop. Uh, Doug Kelly was speaking at the Reformation Worship Conference, and, and they were trying to cut him off. And Doug's in his 70s. He's not, you're not cutting him off. He's going to end when he's done speaking. And so they're trying to cut him off, and so he's had enough of it. So he took the lapel mic, and he said, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and he walked out. <laughs> Side story, just so you know who Doug Kelly is. So he wrote a book called, If God Already Knows, Why Pray? Okay? If God Already Knows, Why Pray? It's a great little book. And, it's, and, it's, uh, and one of the things, he tells a story about a guy who radically changed my life uh, in, 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 in a profound way. And, I, and it was a new story about that guy I had not heard before, and it caused me to weep and kind of meditate afresh. But the guy's name is Jean Lafayette Giardot. Jean Lafayette Girardot has no, well, maybe he does since he's in heaven of the impact he's had upon my life, but Jean Lafayette Girardot was a pastor in Charleston, South Carolina, just before the Civil War. And Giardot was uh, the pastor of a church that had 1,300 African Americans coming to his church, many of which were slaves in Charleston. He had about three or 400 white folks who were brave enough to come, and he, and he was interesting because he made them sit in the slave galley. Sounds like something I would do he made them sit in the slave galley, and the African Americans could sit on the floor. And they, they just, they loved Jean Lafayette Gerardet. So much so, and this is the story that I heard, that when the North was trying to infiltrate certain slave groups to basically burn towns down from the inside out, so they didn't even have to worry about fighting with them, they'd infiltrated a bunch of the slave groups in Charleston. And they said, all right, now what we want you to do is all of you set a fire at the same time. So Charleston will burn to the ground, we, we can keep moving, we ain't even got fire a fire shot you know what they said? They said no. And the reason they said no was because Jean Lafayette Giardot is God's man. And his church is in this town. And to burn down that church is to go against the will of the Lord. And we don't want the Lord judging us for having done so. We have seen too many lives changed by what Giardot has done. We will set no fire. So for those of you who ever visit Charleston and you're like, man, all this history is beautiful. That's why. It didn't burn to the ground because Jean Lafayette Jardot was faithful to the Lord. And those people saw his wonder and his awe and his servitude. And they refused. And that really moved me that, that this man's faithfulness had such a historical impact. What would it look like if we took our faithfulness seriously? Not that we would try to make some sort of historical impact with our faithfulness, but just the long obedience in the same direction. And what we don't know is how it will affect people at some point in history. And we don't know how it will have some sort of generational impact. So would you take time to meditate this Lord's Sabbath day on how others have, their faithfulness has blessed you? And it'd be good for you to consider how is your faithfulness serving as a blessing to others? Now you may say, well, that kind of sounds like arrogance. No, actually, it's not. Let the Spirit tell you. Don't you go counting it up and send me a copy. <laughs> but enjoy it for yourself and recognize there are things that matter. On Thanksgiving, I got a, a text message from a friend of mine who lives in Warner Robins. He's actually a state representative now. God bless him, he's in politics. <laughs> And uh, I, I remember a conversation I had with Heath back when he couldn't figure out what to do with his life. And, and there was a girl that he loved who didn't seem to love him back. And it was just a mess. And over hot wings, I had to watch him cry. And all this stuff. And we, we talked. And, um, and now he's married to that girl. And they have four of the most beautiful children you've ever seen, other than your own, of course. Uh, they have four beautiful children. And he has found his calling. He is, he is doing an amazing job. Uh, as a state representative, and he is fighting the good fight in the name of the Lord. And so he sent me a message and he said, hey man, I know we haven't talked in years. I just wanted you to know on this day as I meditate on things to be thankful for, I am thankful for you and how you invested in me. And I wouldn't have thought nothing of it. I was just sitting with a friend over hot wings. And but he was watching so much more than that, right? And you too, right? So our faithfulness needs to be shared with one another. We need to hear each other's stories. So important to discover that other people are going through the same things. So what do we learn from Luke 1, 26 through 45? One, Jesus is the promised Messiah whose kingdom has come and will never end. That's really important. Two, that we should submit ourselves as servants to the Lord for whom all things are possible. Three, We are blessed by the faithfulness of others as well as serving as a faithful blessing to others. We need each other. And we need to get past all the silliness and we need to get past all the temporality and we need to get past all of the temperament and all of the nonsense that keeps us apart from one another. It's just heartbreaking sometimes how quickly and how easily people divorce themselves from community. It doesn't take much, it seems. It ought to take a lot. Listen to what Tim Keller, in his little book just came out called Hidden Christmas, says about this. God had spent centuries, listen to that, he had spent centuries. How do we know that? Because we read Daniel 7. God had spent centuries preparing for this day. And now he is going to save the world through a simple, poor, teenage, still unwed girl there is a note of joy and astonishment that God is blessing and honoring her. We, listen at this, we should be just as shocked that God would give us with all our smallness and flaws such a mighty gift. And as no Christian should ever be far from astonishment that I, I of all people, should be loved and embraced by His grace. You too should be astonished that the creator of the universe, the God who holds all things together, would choose to dwell in you with all of your flaws and your pettiness, your smallness and your grandiosity and your love and your hate and all that you are. He would choose to dwell in you and do something amazing in you. Amazing in life, amazing in in terms of faithfulness, in terms of blessing each other. That's a great transition for us as we move into a time of baptism. Now, I recognize that not all of us are agreed on uh, the baptism of a child, but let's talk about some of the things that we can be agreed on. First, children are a gift from the Lord. Don't we agree? And they're a gift from the Lord that, as many of you have experienced, that aren't easy to come by sometimes. Can we also agree that God works in things long before we know anything about it? God is sovereign. God was at work in your story and in your life long before you chose him. He chose you. And so, and can we also agree that baptism doesn't save you? It's not going to save Sadie. It's not going to save any of us. But what it does point to is that the king has come. And he's at work in this fallen world. And he, by virtue of giving a child to Christian parents, is making a specific statement about covenant. I think we can agree on that. And you may say, well, don't y'all do two different baptisms? No. Uh, No matter what age you are, baptism means the exact same thing. It means that Christ died for us and that Christ took all of our sin all of God's wrath on himself and it means that he rose again to newness of life and it means that baptism sets us apart and you may say how come you don't use more water well I don't know if you've ever stuck a baby under water before but it's an interesting experience <laughs> but for us the reason we don't use a lot of water is because it's not the water that matters And in fact, the reason that we we sprinkle slash a little bit pour, because I put more than just your sprinkle on, is because that goes all the way back to the setting apart of of the items for usage in the temple. It's a purification rite, in a sense. It is saying, we recognize God has given this gift. So you may say, well, Sadie didn't have a say in it. Well, it's not Sadie's say in the sovereignty of the Lord, but it's her parents who will come forward. Cody and Maria, if you go ahead and come on up. It's they they who are coming forward and saying, hey, we in obedience to the Lord, we are doing this because we recognize God is good. We recognize that it is God alone who gives good gifts. We recognize that this child was given to us from the Lord. And we as a church have an opportunity to participate in this. We too are going to take a vow here in just a moment. Those of you who are members of Christ Community Church, And we are admitting that Sadie is a gift to the church as well, even though she's not going to behave right now. She's just not. I don't blame her. This is tough. She's like, what are y'all looking at? And so this is us all confessing, regardless of whether we agree on certain details, what we are all confessing is that she, Sadie Lee, is a gift from the Lord, and we all want to participate in making sure that Sadie knows all of her days, God's love for her. In giving her life, that alone is a gift from the Lord. And that she would one day respond in faith to God's grace, and that God would use this moment even to speak to Sadie of his love for her, that she would be reminded. One of the things that I do, and Mike Glass did this before, is I write a letter to the, the child for them to open when they're 16. And hopefully that letter will help remind that child of their parents' faithfulness, and God's faithfulness even more important. So, you may say, why not just do a dedication? Well, of the passages that are used for dedication in the Bible, they're all for circumcision. In the New Testament, Paul says, baptism and circumcision are equated. And so, we see it as a covenant continuity. We see it as God's promise, not only to us, but the passage we read from Acts chapter 2 this morning. It said, this promise is for you and for your children and your children's children. God works in terms of generations, even in the individual stories. And so, this is a joyous occasion for us, even, like I said, if, you're, if you don't quite understand or agree with infant baptism, and you probably don't agree with it either. To be honest with you, remember your own baptism. Remember the meaning of your own baptism. Let not this moment pass so that you would give thanks for the great gift that you have in your redemption. Amen? And that will be beneficial to us all. Now, I have a few questions for the parents, and I have questions for the members of Christ Community Church. So let me ask you these questions. Uh, Do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you claim God's covenant promises on her behalf, and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for her salvation as you do your own? Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before her a godly example, that you will pray with and for her, that you will teach her the doctrines of the holy religion, and you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring her up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? This next question is a congregational question. If you're a member of Christ Community Church, you will answer by the raising of your right hand. And I want to say, don't take this lightly. And you may say, how do we serve Sadie? Well, one, pray for her and pray for her parents and share your lives with them. Encourage them. Second, serve in the nursery and in the children's ministry and be faithful in so doing. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? I think that counts as a quorum. I don't count them all, but that looks good to me. All right. Now, I want to pray for Sadie, and I want to pray for Cody and Maria, and I want to pray for this baptism, I want to pray for us too. So I'm going to take a moment to pray, and then I'll baptize her. Father, thank you that you give us a visible word in the sacrament of baptism. Thank you that it extends over the whole of your people Thank you that you give us a covenant promise that reaches all the way back to Genesis 1 and points all the way forward to Revelation 22. God, thank you that Christ has come, that what this baptism signifies and it seals is a reality. And for those of us who already know Christ as Savior and have been baptized, may we improve upon our baptism. May this be a meaningful time for us to reflect on the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the intercession of Christ. God, I pray for Sadie, that someday if she is reminded of her baptism, that she in faith would be drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit to confess by grace alone, by faith alone, that Christ alone is her Savior. I pray for Cody and Maria, that there will be days that are tough, tough to share, tough to be obedient, that they would continue to look to you as the author and finisher of their and hopefully in the future, Sadie's faith. That they would also lean upon the power and the work of the Holy Spirit and realize that no mistake they make as a parent will be permanent. And no good thing they do will be permanent either. But they can be faithful and share that faithfulness with Sadie all the days of her life. We pray for all of this in Christ's name. Amen.